Wachier. Welcome to In Friendship, presented by the National Association of Friendship Centers, produced in our podcast studios at the Wachier Friendship Center in Courtney, British Columbia. In Friendship focuses on issues of consequence to our friends across the lands. We've mostly been looking at the pandemic, specifically misinformation and untruths. You won't find any of that on here. In fact, this week, our story coordinator, Ali Reader, sends us coast to coast. First up, as far left as we can go, Dr. Benusik representing Island Health. And then, to the other end of the country, we speak to Executive Director Jennifer Elson of Labrador Friendship Centers. But first, notes on the news. After 24 years of water advisory, Shoal Lake and 41st Nations can now drink from the tap. Sarah Petz of CBC reports that after more than two decades without clean drinking water, Shoal Lake, 41st Nation, on the Ontario-Manitoba border, is celebrating the opening of a water treatment facility and the end of water advisories for the community. About two dozen people from the community, as well as numerous dignitaries, including Federal Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller, attended the event. Oscar Baker III from CBC reports, Britton Hannam's second feature-length film, Wildhood, is opening this year's Finn Atlantic International Film Festival. Wildhood is the story of two Mi'kmaq brothers, Lincoln Travis, who flee their abusive father and embark on a two-spirited odyssey reconnecting with culture and the territory of the Mi'kma'ki, Nova Scotia, while trying to find Link's mother. You can find out more or stream on yourself at under the convenient stream column at www.finfestival.ca. Dave Baxter reported a grand opening ceremony was held for the Anishinaanu Minnoiwigamik Health and Healing Center, which comes out of a partnership between Island Lake Tribal Council and Four Arrows Regional Health Authority will provide more than 15,000 Island Lake residents the opportunity to access medical, dental, and pharmaceutical services. For many Indigenous women and families, pregnancy and childbirth can be an empowering experience. But deciding to get the COVID-19 vaccine while you're pregnant or if you're thinking about having a baby, can be a difficult choice to make. COVID-19 vaccines won't be harmful to you or to your pregnancy and will not prevent you from becoming pregnant, based on the most current data. But if you get the virus while pregnant and are not vaccinated, it could seriously harm the health of you and your baby. Your health and safety are sacred. And so are those first special moments with your newborn. Getting the COVID-19 vaccine is one of the best ways to protect yourself, your baby, and your community. Ali Reader, our story coordinator, has rustled up a couple of terrific guests this week. Who's up first, Ali? Now we talk to Mike Benusik, the medical health officer at Island Health. Today I have on Dr. Mike Benusik. Thanks so much for having me today. And today, um, being able to have you on as a medical health officer for Island Health, the first question that I'd like to talk to you about is what inspired the idea for mobile vaccinations? Great question. You know, I've been involved in COVID-19 vaccination uh, on the islands um, since the vaccines first came about, you know, in, in December of 2020. 
And at that time, you know, people were extremely, extremely eager to get vaccinated because, you know, we were starting off with people who were high risk and people were really concerned about COVID-19. Um, and basically till a couple months ago, that's what my life was, is um, people banging down the doors to get COVID-19 vaccine and and us just having to say, like, we appreciate you. We, we we're going to get you your vaccine, but you got to you got to wait your turn. Um, that flipped, though, of course, when we got more supply of vaccine and we were able to get um, people who are at higher risk of having exposures and those who are at higher risk of having severe disease from COVID. We got them all vaccinated. We we're able to open up to every single person. Then we were left sort of with people who um, maybe are a bit on the fence and 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 not the ones banging on our doors to get vaccinated. And so there we had to get clever to, to figure out what are the factors that are um, making it so so people aren't coming to us to get vaccinated. And one big one is just convenience. There are some people who are either just too busy in their day and they're not prioritizing coming to a clinic to get vaccinated, or they're kind of on the fence is that they're not going to go out of their way to get a vaccine. But if, if they see it in front of their grocery store, they'd be like, hey, I'll roll up my sleeve. And so that's why the Vaxan came about. And we've been sending it out throughout um, throughout the islands to, to, to get easy access to vaccine. And it's been very successful. And when you were being able to look at different places to help determine where you would be able to make it most accessible for people, um, for example, parks, beaches, shopping destinations, and events. Um, how did you gather with your team to sort of pick and choose which places would be most appropriate in that sense for accessibility? Yeah, it's another great question. So we, you know, luckily this isn't our, our first go around with providing vaccines. We provide all the regular vaccines um, and flu vaccine every year. So we kind of know where there's pockets of people who may be more on the fence about getting vaccinated and then just applying some common sense principles. So if we're going to set up, um, we really want to set up in a high traffic area. So places where people are going to be coming through regardless just to be doing their their daily stuff. And so that's why I think um, things like grocery stores and gas stations have been and public um, beaches have been really successful because there's going to be people there anyways. Um, if we were to set up, you know, just in the some random building in town where people would have to drive there and there's um, just less of that, it's right kind of in your face, easy access, we probably wouldn't be as successful. So that's sort of the principle we went on is we want it to be as easy as possible and really just meet people where they're at. So people don't have to come to us, we're coming to people. And as the medical health officer for Island Health, in getting the van and the vaccinations and the team together, um, what was that process like? And is this the first time that mobile vaccinations have been provided in this particular manner? Yeah. So I like to think of the Vax van as just kind of a, a, a tool in our big toolbox of outreach. You know, we most of our vaccines throughout the past, what, 10 months now have been provided through our mass immunization clinics, you know, for, for our biggest site down in Victoria, we were providing um, regularly more than a thousand per day, but we've been providing tons of different options to get people vaccinated since day one. So I'm thinking of um, first when we were providing vaccines to those living on uh, remote indigenous communities, it was our public health teams going out um, and setting up in you know whatever community center or gym or um, or 
or Longhouse, whatever was uh, available to us to uh, to work with the communities to provide vaccination. And that's something that you know the, our teams have been doing for so long with influenza vaccines. So it wasn't a big shift in, in providing outreach that way. And we also have been providing, you know, outreach to shelters, outreach to people who are homebound, to group homes, um, you, you name it, lots of different ways to meet people in the communities. I guess the reason the Vaxfan is different is it's a little bit flashy, you know, <laughs> you, you, you have this band with some stickers on it and you put these tents up where um, it's, it's more uh, sort of to attract people to come. And so I, I think that's where the, the power of the Vaxfan is. And, you know, um, we don't need to send the Vax van to, to every community. We just have to, like if we were going to a house it, like we regularly, I'm just providing a house it as an example because um, I, I'm a medical health officer for one of my areas I cover is this, the uh, the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And so we wouldn't send the, the Vax van to a house it if, um, if um, some members of the community needed vaccination. We would probably just send one nurse with like a vial or some, some syringes of vaccine to vaccinate. So it's just got to, it's more of that tool where it's more like has to be a bit flashy to, to really advertise to people and uh, to, to meet people where they're at. But I mean, we do that routinely, whether or not it's with the vaccine or just our usual methods. Well, and it's helpful to know that that being able to uh, realize that being a little more flashy and out there can attract um, the Mm -hmm. right kind of attention and uh, support for those in need. One of the aspects around the vax van uh, that I read about was that it was only providing a first dosage for people, and then afterwards they would have to go to a more centralized clinic to get their secondary dose. I was curious as to uh, what helped to d- determine whether or not you were going to give one or, or two doses. Good question. So that that was previously, it was only first doses, and that's because um, we had no walk-in availability anywhere on the island for second doses. It was still very much, just because of our supply, it was you ha- like you can walk in for a first dose, but for a second dose, you have to book just because we wanted to make sure that the access was as easy as possible for first doses because that's where the biggest bang for your buck is with getting your immunity. You know, you're going from 0% protection to, let's say, 80%. Definitely, I want people to get that second dose because they're going to go from 80% to maybe 95%, but wanted to make sure the barrier is lowest as possible for first doses. That's changed now, however. We have more supply of vaccine and, you know, our, the, the amount of people who require first doses is getting smaller every day. And so with the Vaxfan um, and actually all of our vaccination sites throughout the island, anyone is able to walk in for a first dose if they haven't received it yet. And of course, if they're eligible. So if they're born in 2009 and earlier, mm-hmm. or they can walk in for a second dose as long as they're 28 days past the first dose, just because that's we require that 28 days for the vaccine to actually work. And so with the Vaxfan, definitely, if you see it, you can get your first dose, you can get your second dose if you need it, if it's at least 28 days. It's just not a real guarantee if you get your first dose of the Vaxfan that we'll be back at that same site 28 days later. People do have to look a bit to to where they get their second dose, but we try to make it easy as possible um, in all of our communities to have easy access, but it's not always the Vaxfan. And that's definitely good to know. Um, part of what I want to talk about now is a bit more about you and, and sharing more with the people. So in July, Dr. Binusik joined Island Health as a new medical health officer for Central Vancouver Island. And, and what I want to talk to you about there is how has it been in adjusting to your new role and providing a sense of connection in that role? 
right now I'm my area I'm, I'm focusing in on is is the West Coast because there's another doctor, Dr. Sandra Allison, who's joined and she's covering um, Greater Nanaimo and Oceanside. So I've been working with um, you know the communities of Port Alberni and Toloquiet and Howsit and um, Bamfield and Euculet um, and Tofino, uh, really providing them the guidance and and support. But my other role is just for vaccine COVID vaccination for the entire island, which takes up most of my time. And I it's been obviously very. Um, fulfilling role just to see how many people have been willing to roll up their sleeves and and help themselves and help the communities. I was curious if you could share what can we do as citizens to better understand and be aware of both these different pandemics going on? You know, the goals in my mind and in the mind of actually what's stated by Canada and and BC is, is not to eliminate COVID. I think that COVID has shown that it's, it's going to be with us forever because people who are vaccinated can still get COVID. Now, the risk of having harms from it is extremely low, but they can still get it. And so that means that it's unlikely, even if we vaccinate everyone, that COVID is just going to disappear. But what, to me, the markers of success is, is minimizing the harms. So the number of people been hospitalized, the number of deaths from COVID, um, and then also minimize the the disruption to society because uh, like there certainly is, is harms with, um, with things like what, you know, restricting movement, restricting um, people's access to services because uh, like there's just different unintended consequences. And there's been a quite the mental health toll on, on everyone through this pandemic. And speaking about um, the, the other public health emergency of the, what I think it's good to be referred to as the toxic drug supply crisis is that like it has absolutely killed more people in BC over the past 18 months than, than, than COVID has. Um, on the Island, we've had about, um, about 50 deaths from COVID-19 over the past 18 months. And we've certainly had, have had more deaths from, um, from opioid overdoses. And I think it's, it's a great question about what else can be done through the community. And I, I I think that there's, there's, you know, a lot I, we can do as public health by providing harm reduction services, by um, ensuring in the health authority that we have um, easy access to treatment services, to counseling, um, to, to, to do other things like uh, researching and investing in, in safe supply to ensure that those who, who have an addiction um, and a dependency on a substance can access substances that 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 aren't that put them at a higher risk for overdose. But then that's that's only one level. There's so much else in the community that of, of reasons why people would be be using substances. A lot of that has to do with um, like factors that I only know from textbooks and conversations with people, to be honest, because of just my position of privilege. But, you know, like um, colonialism, um, uh, trauma through the medical system, trauma through the residential school system, trauma through um, childhood experiences. And this is, I mean, obviously, like that's not, I'm not, that's not specific to any population that can happen amongst anyone having childhood traumas that can put them at higher risk. And so I think that like that just the general focus on community and making sure that members of the community feel supported um, 
I can't overstate how important that is and mm-hmm. and how I see that in a lot of communities. I see that that strength and the support of their members. And sometimes it's not easy, especially if there's um, with someone who who has an addiction to try to support them and meet them where they're at and um, and not and not be you know, not drive them away, but try to bring them in. And so I think that's the biggest thing that people can continue to do. And I, I do see that all the time throughout the island is to be supportive, try to meet people where they're at, try to work with them, try not to like be prescriptive and tell them what to do because that can drive them away and really just know that like these aren't easy things. It's a long, long struggle for so many people. There are some aspects recently, you know, with the COVID uh vaccine uh, passport and and some hesitancy around, um, you know, people's want to get the vaccination. Um, Is there any advice that you could share in helping people to better understand different ways that they could look at the choice that would benefit for their safety and well-being if they were sort of on the fence? Yeah, great question. And I'm involved in kind of both sides of, of vac well all sides but like both sides of vaccination right now I'm involved with providing sort of the medical guidance to lead our clinics and to provide low barrier access to vaccines and, and to ensure that vaccines are provided in a in a safe way I'm also in, involved with reviewing all the reports of adverse events following immunization so that's if someone after having a um, a vaccination had something out of the ordinary Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say that they had um, like a fever that lasted for weeks or they had a, um, a situation where they had some tingling in their feet. Like those are reported through public health. They come to me and I, a couple things I try to do. One is to determine, is this related to vaccine? Because when we're vaccinating the entire population, we expect that like there's def- there's going to be medical things that happen to people within a month after vaccination, mm-hmm. just because Coincidentally, and so, like for instance, um, people die after vaccination, hundred percent, and that's because those deaths related to vaccines. I have yet to find a, a death that's related to vaccination within Island Health. When I review them, it's clear that it's like okay, someone who had this condition and um, ended up dying from uh, a stroke that they uh, were had because they've had previous strokes, and we have never seen that the vaccines can cause these vaccines can cause strokes. And so those are the types of things that I work through. So I see both sides. So I can see the benefit of vaccination and I can also see the risks. And I can, I can really confidently say that for everyone who's eligible for vaccine, that the benefits of vaccination outweigh the risks. And the reason I, I'll say that is because you know, I think back in July when we, were, we virtually had no COVID on the island before Delta arrived, I think people safely could think to themselves that, all right, my risk of exposure is, is so low. So I'm, I'm not gonna, if I'm not going to get COVID, how come, why would I get a vaccine that has any risk? Well, it's, it's, it's changed now. With the Delta variant, it's, it's very clear that COVID is, is here to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, it is more transmissible. It is more deadly. And I think it is it's just a matter of time before someone is going to be exposed. And the thing to me is, if someone has vaccines on board, their risk of having um, severe disease from that is going to be incredibly low. And so that's where it kind of switches that risk benefit balance is that knowing that exposure is, is likely over, you know, over the, the next year, I would say that um, vaccines will decrease that risk. And the really extremely small risk with vaccines, very, very, very often just temporary side effects um, 
are definitely um, outweighed by the risks of COVID itself. And I would say if people have questions, talk to someone they trust, talk to a family member, especially people who have gotten the vaccine, because most people will tell you, like, you know, like, I didn't feel good for a couple of days, but now I'm feeling great. Talk to people who have, who've got COVID after um, getting vaccinated, because what we see is, um, for example, there's a 90-year-old who, who got COVID after getting vaccinated and they had a sniffle. Like, I, I don't think if they were unvaccinated that they would have just had a sniffle. So talk to those people and how well they've done. Talk to um, people you trust. And ultimately, um, I, I certainly recommend getting vaccinated. I think the last thing I'd like to ask you about that I've uh, seen in the news that perhaps people might be curious about if you have any information on a possible third dosage. Is there any uh, outlying information at the moment that people might need to hear? For, for third doses, we give it to people where we, we, we think that they never actually had a good response after their first two doses. And um, those are people who usually who have severe to moderate immunocompromising disorders. So that was announced Monday um, about who those people would be. It's a, a very small group of people who we think didn't really have a good um a good immune response after the first two. So we're giving them a third dose really just to, to help um, get them to an area that they never were at in terms of their immunity. And there's really good evidence for that. The other group, the booster doses, is I think a lot more complicated in that booster doses is where you've given people two doses, but we think perhaps their immunity has gone down and that they might be more susceptible to getting COVID. And you know, we see in some countries they've started doing this. In Ontario, they've started doing this for some long-term care patients. Uh, in in the U.S., they've announced that they're doing it for everyone. From my, from what I've seen from all the evidence, there is there's really not great evidence to say that someone's immunity drops like substantially over time. And so I know that there's a lot of people who were vaccinated back in December and January who are concerned about their level of immunity, mm-hmm. and probably. It's probably safe to say that their protection against getting COVID has maybe dropped 5 or 10%, but there's no evidence to suggest that their protection against severe disease has dropped. And to me, that's the, the major thing. And I really, really want to be sure that, um, you know, that the benefit of receiving an additional dose of vaccine um, is, is higher than any risk there would be with receiving an additional dose of vaccine. So I'm happy that in BC we've, we've been... Um, sort of we've been following the evidence. We haven't been um, jumping ahead to provide it. We've been following what the evidence has shown, which I think is, is really important. And I would say to everyone who's received a two doses that they should have some a good level of reassurance that they're protected, especially against the, um, the, the harms from COVID, except for those who we, we've now said should get the third dose. I, I, would, I would definitely encourage that small group of people to get that third dose. Fantastic. Well, that's all my questions I have for you, uh, Dr. Benusik, uh, the Medical Health Officer for Island Health on behalf of Watch A Friendship Center and the National Association of Friendship Centers. I really appreciate you being able to take time out of your day to share a lot of this valuable and incredible information for the people. Thanks so much for having me, and I really appreciate you covering this, and have a great day. Terrific work. Now where to? Thanks, Caleb. We were looking to find out what friendship centers have to offer for the fall, and I found Labrador Friendship Center. We will be talking to Jennifer Hessler-Elson, Executive Director. 
Thank you for being here, Jennifer. I, uh, I understand that you are a fa- member of faculty at the Labrador Friendship Center. Could you share a little bit about your position there? Okay, I'm the executive director. Uh, thank you for having me, uh, first off. And uh, yes, I'm the executive director of the Labrador Friendship Center uh, for the last 10 years. So I oversee the operations of the organization and uh, I'm also HR. <laughs> so because we don't have a lot of money to have all the different um, positions, then I have to assume those positions as well. Are there any obstacles you or your Friendship Center community have faced or had to adjust to in the recent times during the COVID pandemic? Yes, there's quite a few, actually. We had a, um, what we would call a hostel and kitchen or diner. It's called the Gary Broomfield Hostel in the Friendship Diner that provides uh, space for people to stay when they come up from the smaller North Coast or South Coast communities in Labrador for medical appointments. And the diner provides the food, uh, makes the food for the people staying here. So we had to shut down for, from I believe it was March the 15th or the 16th until July the 13th. So it affected our revenue that we generate from that for our social enterprise that contributes to our revenue for the friendship sector. We also offer a program that is uh, called an assisted living program, and we provide care to people living with stage one and stage two that require help. And um, that was kept open at full scale because that was essential services. So there's a lot of different things that we were able to do. We had to change the way things were delivered. We had to stop some programs. Some things were negative, and well, most things were negative, but we did have some positive things happen too with new programming come on board that we could deliver from online. It was a learning experience for us, uh, for a lot of people, I guess, and mental health issues came along with that as well. Wow, that that definitely doesn't sound like a very easy time to adjust to. But what are some some said positive future goals that you'd like to see come true in the near future for Labrador Centers? Well, some of the positive things were that people came together and we found out different ways to communicate and host meetings. Also to deliver programs to people, even though they didn't come into the center, we were still able to make sure that they received their food banks because we have the food bank, our community food bank is in the center and we oversee the operations of that. So in order for the, instead of them coming in, um, our community outreach worker actually delivered the food bank orders to their homes and they were put in bags and we had to leave them at the door and then they couldn't come out until we were gone and things like that. So it was an adjustment for that, but it was done and people still had their food. And that's how you would operate still today, I imagine. Well, today we, uh, we're we open a bit more to the uh, public because in Newfoundland Labrador, our numbers are down quite well. So we are able to open to the public now so they can actually come to the center. They stay in the reception area and we bring their um, orders out to them, the food orders. And so is your uh, is your community comprised of mostly youth or elders? Mostly elders, like most of Canada. Uh, uh, our population is is aging, but there are quite a few youth here as well. So I don't have the full statistics. It's very difficult to get the statistics on everybody. But, uh, you know, it's kind of more elders than, than youth. And most of our program covering is for women and men. We do have one youth program called the SHIELD program, which is a uh, sexual health information program for exchanging information. And uh, a lot of things had to change there because it was up when the uh, youth, you'd come in to um, 
learn about sexual health and uh, the 2S LGBTQ uh, community. So we had to change the way that was done, and that affected the program quite a lot because our numbers were quite high for reaching youth, but we had to start doing things uh, virtually. And difficult to say how high the numbers are, but we may be reaching a lot of people and not able to capture those numbers. So the Sexual Health Information Exchange Labrador District Program actually um, uses art, culture, and technology to get the information across and for them to learn. So it was, you know, was affected in that way. And um, are there any upcoming events or information from your center that you'd like us to know about? Well, we're hosting our 47th AGM on September the 22nd. And we did end up having quite a successful year and uh, because I was quite concerned about the money. But uh, we were successful in, in um, being the proponent and the delivery, like we would administer a program for the new Reaching Home program that was established for this area on the, the Indigenous stream. So we received money that is administered to other parts of our whole province for uh, housing projects or proposals that would help homelessness within the communities, and we were successful in receiving that. So the admin dollars from that really did help us um, be able to keep our heads above the water, which was really good. No kidding. And um, speaking of youth, are there any youth-led programs at your community there? It's just a SHIELD program right now that we have. They are, in, like the youth age for the youth programs that we have, it's just for the SHIELD. And the Community Youth Network Program is included in that. And because of COVID, we don't have very much in-person happening. So hopefully within the next few months to a year that we can be able to have in-person programming again. And, and I guess that ties in. Do you have a contingency plan? Should there be any further shutdowns or, say, numbers rise? Well, if if uh, the plan would be to go back to more virtual again, meetings will be held virtually more often, and people would still follow the same thing that happened last year, we'd probably be better prepared for it because we're, we're just doing the same thing again because what we did, well, it did work in our province, which was great, so our numbers kept down low. And given that, have you found there being any difficulty um, being able to keep your elders healthy or, or active during these times of being at home and being stuck inside for long times, extended periods of time? Um, unfortunately, we weren't able to have elders meetings and things. Like, we usually have an elders uh, oh, advisory committee, like, for overseeing elders programming for us. And because elders are more... Um, susceptible, I guess, to COVID. Uh, I'm not thinking of the right word, but, you know, they, they're more likely to get COVID and have uh, serious illness with it. We didn't want to expose any possibility to them coming into the building or anything like that. So I think the it would be more um, social isolation. Um, and not being able to see their friends and that. We heard that a lot. Like that was more of the mental health in that because I believe they are cared for quite well with different programs in the province for being able to get their food and things like that. But And the grocery stores would actually deliver food for them. So, you know, we did make sure they were kept safe so that we didn't encourage them to come here. or we They couldn't come here anyway because we we're closed to the public. Our doors were locked, so... But I think they suffered from mental health more, like for isolation, you know, heart didn't see their friends and stuff. I know my mom um, probably experienced that as well, like you're stuck in the house. 
Certainly. And I noticed that uh, while I was looking and briefly uh, searching, I-, I noticed that detail was that, you know, your your community is comprised of indigenous people who are automatically members to the Friendship Center there, which I think is a really interesting way of operation. It's great. Mm-hmm. It is good in a lot of ways because you don't even have to say, okay, where's your membership or anything like that. Like, we don't say no to people. Definitely not. And you don't have to be a member to receive service. You know, you don't have to say, okay, I'm a member. So someone came in, like, from a different indigenous background, then we wouldn't say, well, where's your membership card before you can get food bank or before you can get a backpack or before you can avail of any of our programs. So it would be more for uh, when you want to have statistics and, and accounting for stuff at the AGM. Friendship Centers are one of the biggest service providers in the country for urban Indigenous people. And um, I really can't see any service being denied to an Indigenous person. I can't see a person being denied service, even if they're not Indigenous, so that, you know, we're concerned about people's health and well-being and safety. So mm, I I really couldn't see anybody turning anybody away unless, you know, they're they're, uh, concerned for the safety of staff or something. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Today it was really well spent, and we had a great time hearing from you. And I hope to hear from you again in the future. No problem, and I really appreciate the uh, contact with you. It's great to speak with you. Likewise. Take care, be well, and stay safe, Jennifer. You too. Watch you. Thanks again, Allie. Well, that's a wrap for this week. So, from all of us, Sherwin Strong, Allie Reader, and myself, Caleb Gambler, Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Get vaccinated. Stay safe. Be well. This has been a National Association of Friendship Centers, Watchier Multimedia Production. Watchier.